This morning's reading is from 1 John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, and chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you to open the scripture together and look at it and see what it has to say to us this morning. So I want to start with this. What are you certain about? I bet your list is pretty short, actually. Uh, You may be sure of some facts like 2 plus 2 is 4, or there are two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom in a molecule of water. You may be sure what your name is. We all hope that. You may have some certainty about some events in the past, or maybe you have some certainty about what's true right now in this room. The, The lights are on, for instance. That's true. You're certain about that. But when we look in the future as creatures, there are many things that we are not certain about. For instance, will will Mike's team win the game this weekend? Or will your company be successful this year? Or will your child choose to follow Christ? Or will your aged parent make it to her next birthday before she passes away? We don't know. We, We lack certainty about many of these things because we are creatures. We may have some idea about what will happen. We may have some level of confidence about what might happen, but we couldn't say that we know or that we're certain about what's going to happen. And we add to that the fact that our culture is just averse to certainty. It's averse to truth claims. It's treated as a moral virtue to be unsure or to question something that you've held true for a long time. It's treated as a moral vice, actually, in our culture to be certain or sure about something. It's treated like pride or arrogance. The the culture seems to value agnosticism, applauding an individual's journey or bravery to doubt what they have formerly believed. It's celebrated in our culture to deconstruct and depart from your former conviction. But in contrast to our culture, Christianity is filled with claims about what we believed to be true, both now and in the future. 
And the Bible invites us to believe its claims as absolutely true, with certainty, and believe the Bible's promises that certain things are true now and will be true in the future as well. So our topic this morning is assurance of salvation. The question that we're trying to answer is whether you can know that you are a Christian. Can you have certainty that the Bible's promises actually apply to you? Or can you only wish or hope that they apply to you? Thinking back to my youth, we used to ask it this way, do you know that you know that you know that you're going to go to heaven when you die? In other words, we're trying to get at this idea of certainty. Now, last week, Sean Powers, our guest speaker from Iowa, just gave an excellent foundation for the truth that once you're a Christian, then God never takes that away from you. That you can never lose your salvation. That once we're adopted into God's family, God never tears up those adoption papers. He never destroys them. They are written in Christ's blood, and he reminded us of this wonderful truth in John 10, where Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now this is a comforting truth that really helps us live with confidence. Because we know that we have, if we've trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we've been adopted into his family. And nothing can snatch us out of God's hand. Now, we're a church that treasures sound doctrine. It's, it's written out there in the lobby. Sound doctrine, one of our core values. And we teach and preach like a, a grand view of God's salvation and his mercy and grace, that we're saved by grace through faith alone. We teach that God both saves and adopts and preserves his children by his own sovereignty and so we, we really embrace this idea that once you're saved, God will never take that away. Because it is a work of God from start to finish. But there's a different kind of doubt that I want to address today. It's not the doubt that I'm a Christian and there might be some sin I could commit that would be bad enough that I would lose my salvation. We have a different struggle with our lack of assurance, typically, within our church What tends to plague us with our doubts is not that we look ahead and see what we might do that might make God not love us anymore. It's actually we look back. We look back in time and ask the question, did I really believe? Is my faith real? Am I truly saved? We look backward. We don't look forward. We we understand that God's work of salvation is sure and complete We look back and ask, is my faith real? And this is one of the questions we'll be wrestling with in the book of 1 John. And I just want to say here at the beginning, this is a common struggle. And whenever whenever we go through it individually, it's terrifying and very difficult. 
But I just want to assure you that, that many believers in this room have struggled with their lack of assurance in the past. Some may be struggling with it today. Some will be struggling with it in the future. And I just want you to know that you're not alone in that struggle. And you shouldn't feel alone in that struggle. You might think, where do these doubts come from? Why am I feeling this way? It doesn't seem like anyone else is struggling like this, like me. Let me just say, I know based on my conversations with many of you, that many of you have struggled with assurance of salvation. It could be a fairly new teenage believer who can't remember the day when they first trusted Christ. That's awkward to not know. It could be it could be a senior adult saint who for decades struggled with assurance. So it's a common struggle for many of us and I I hope that we will find some help uh, in the book of 1 John. Now, for many of you going to the book of 1 John, you say, John, why would you go to the book of 1 John to talk about assurance? I'm, I'm glad you asked, and I'll explain that in a minute. But before we do that, I just want to start with another paragraph from our church's confession of faith, uh, Trinity Fellowship Church's confession of faith. It has a great section on assurance, chapter 20. And if you go to our website, go to what we believe, you can get to our confession of faith. And this is chapter 20, paragraph number 4. And this will just help set the table for what we're going to do. So it says this, true believers may have assurance, may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, and interrupted in various ways. This can happen by negligence in preserving it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, allowing even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet, they are never destitute of the seed of God and life of faith, or the love of Christ and the brethren, or the sincerity of heart and conscience of their duty, And by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. In the meantime, by the Spirit, they are preserved from utter despair. You see, a lack of assurance can be a common experience. But even in the midst of it, God is at work preserving his children. So Mike already mentioned the book that we mentioned last week, Assured, by Greg Gilbert. And so I just want to commend that again to you. It's very readable, it's pretty short, um, and very clear on a somewhat challenging topic. So uh, the two books that I, I brought three books up here today, Assured by Greg Gilbert, uh, Joy Unspeakable by Martin Lloyd-Jones is another favorite of mine that speaks to this issue, and uh, The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. So if you want some books to read on the topic, I recommend those. I bring up this book because if you get it and read it, you may say, John stole from it because I read it this week and it had a shaping effect on my sermon today. And so I will quote some from it, but also some of the arguments in that book have affected my sermon. So we we like reading good books. We like giving credit uh, when one helps us. Uh, So our our outline this morning, our points are this. So we're going to get assurance in three ways. Number one, when your confession lines up with God's promises. When your confession lines up with God's promises. That's number one. Number two, when your life lines up 
with your confession. When your life lines up with your confession. And number three, when the Holy Spirit pours out God's love in your heart. Let's pray. Oh God, we need you. We need the work of the Holy Spirit even now this morning. Lord, for those in the room who are currently struggling with a lack of assurance of their salvation, I pray that your word would bring light and hope and confidence and assurance. That your Holy Spirit would pour out the love of God in their hearts. And Lord, I pray for help as we look at the book of 1 John together. That you would help us all to read it, read it better. To read it in the way that John intended it, that you intended it. That would actually bring confidence and not doubt. Lord, thank you for the gospel, the good news that you save sinners. Help us to apply that good news to our own hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So number one, when your confession lines up with God's promises. Look back in chapter 5, verse 13. So we're going to be jumping around in the book of 1 John a bit today. But in chapter 5, verse 13, John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, not every New Testament uh, book has a sentence, a statement by the author telling you exactly why he wrote it. So I really appreciate this from, from the Apostle John. It's very helpful. In fact, in his gospel, he did the exact same thing in the gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 30, John writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, John wrote his gospel so that people would do what? Believe. John wrote his first letter so that people would know that they have eternal life. He wrote his gospel so they would believe. He wrote his letter so that they would know that they have eternal life. Now, ironically, Christians throughout the centuries have really struggled with John's message about assurance in 1 John. I mean, John uses really simple vocabulary. Like if one day you really get, you know, you really get excited and you're going to study Greek, one of the first things you're going to do is work in the first letter of John because it's very attainable in the Greek. It's very clear language. He uses very clear pictures, and yet he says really challenging things. And we're going to deal most, with most of those challenges in point number two. But let's just first acknowledge why John wrote the letter. He tells us right here in verse 13 that those who believe in the name of the Son of God would know that they have eternal life. He's dealing with the issue of assurance and with certainty. He wants them to know that they have eternal life. So I don't know your history with this verse or this book. Let me just tell you a little bit of my history. I, I rummaged through a bunch of stuff yesterday trying to find where I wrote this down. On February 20th, 1991, when I kind of dealt the first death blow to my lack of assurance. You see, this is, this is the night that I went up to my youth pastor on a Wednesday night, and I was wrestling with assurance of salvation. And I finally just 
I finally just gave up trying to contribute anything of my own to my salvation and trusted in Christ alone. And Lee, my youth pastor, took me to this verse in chapter 5 and told me to write it down. And I did, somewhere that I can't find. I've written this that you who believe on the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. You see, he was trying to help me get assurance of my salvation. This is when I put my hope in Christ alone. I believed in the Son of God. I finally gave up in my desperation from contributing my own goodness to my salvation and trusted in Christ alone. And I'm so thankful for this vivid memory of my conversion. You see, because before this, I was a religious person. I tried to be a good person. I attended church. I read my Bible. I listened to Christian music. And yet, none of those things were a solid enough foundation for me to have an assurance of my salvation. They were insufficient sources of assurance that I had tried. Let me just give you, let me just list some of the things that you or I may try as insufficient sources of assurance. Something I did in the past. I prayed the sinner's prayer at a church service or revival. I got baptized. I, I do something to remember when I turn to God. Um, I've, I think my youth pastor told me to do this. Take a nail and go nail it in the fence post at home in your backyard and, you know, inscribe in there the date that you became a Christian. So if you ever doubt in the future, you can go back to that fence post and see that nail and see the date and know that's when I became a Christian. Friends, that's an insufficient support for assurance. Or maybe I had a spiritual experience or maybe it's something I feel in the present. I try to make this the source of my assurance my love for God, or devotion to God, or closeness to God, or gratefulness because of the forgiveness of sins. And as long as I feel that in the present, I have assurance of salvation. Friends, that's an insufficient grounds for assurance. Or maybe it's something I do in the present. I go to church, I read my Bible, I sing the songs, I avoid certain sins. Friends, those are insufficient grounds for assurance. Or maybe it's the quality, the quality of my obedience or faith. Is my faith strong enough? Is it pure enough? Is it big enough? Those questions will never lead you to assurance. Or maybe you look back and say, you know what? I remember that time where I asked God for something in prayer and he gave it to me. So that means that God's with me. Friends, in the future, that's not enough to be the grounds of your assurance. So certainly many of these things should be true about believers, but they are insufficient by themselves to provide assurance of salvation. And there's a particular group that I'm, that I'm preaching to today in our church that if you base your assurance on some past ex religious experience, it really hurts them. We have many in our church who have grown up in the, around the Christian faith and from their earliest years only remember believing that Jesus is their Savior. They don't look back and, and think of this critical moment when they went from death to life or when they went from darkness to light. They just remember, I've, I've grown up believing this, but, and then they start doubting. But is my faith real? Is it sure? Is it enough? 
So we can't just look back at some transformational conversion for our assurance. It's in God's providence that many of you have trusted in Christ from a very young age. We should rejoice in that. But we want to help you find assurance by today knowing that you are still continuing to trust in the gospel. See, friends, the gospel is a sufficient source for assurance. The surest and most sufficient source for biblical assurance is your present day belief in the claims of the gospel. The good news that Christ died for sinners to bring them into a right relationship with God through his life and death and burial and resurrection. It is faith in these promises which provides the surest footing for our assurance of salvation. Uh, John leads us to this in, in the verse we've read several times. I write these things for you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So that's kind of shorthand. For you believe the gospel. You believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He goes through several more statements throughout the book. In chapter 4, verse 15, we get, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Or chapter 5, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Or verse 12, Whoever has the Son has life Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. He goes through the gospel a bit in chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. means he, he solved the wrath of God problem for us. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Or we could jump back to John's gospel. Say it with me. Chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, our assurance starts with that. Our assurance starts with, do you believe that that is true? If you believe that that is true, that all those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life, then friend, you, you are starting down the road of assurance of salvation. You can't start anywhere else. And when we say that, all whoever, whoever believes in him, we have to remember who it is that God saves. Like when we talk about the gospel, who is it that God saves? It's important to remember, and we have to remind ourselves of this, especially if we've been in the church a long time and we've, like we're growing in holiness and godliness. We have to remind ourselves, who is it that God saves? God saves sinners. God doesn't save good people. God doesn't save people who try really hard. God saves people who know that they are sinners. This is why it's good news. And so we have to start with the, the first step for your assurance is, do you really understand how bad you really are? And how nothing that you can do can earn God's favor or forgiveness or grace? But there's good news because Christ died for Sinners. The gospel means that at no time in our life here on earth, at no time are we deserving of God's salvation. Now, we were comfortable saying that like before you became a Christian. I know that I didn't deserve God's grace, but somehow we get down the road and we start thinking we have to prove that we're his disciples by how we live. 
that we have to earn it, that we have to deserve it at some point. But friends, there's no point in your Christian life until you've been glorified that you will deserve God's mercy. It's always an undeserved gift. So the first and primary source of our assurance then is our current confidence in the gospel and the promises of God. Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Do you believe that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Do you believe Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So nothing else that we examine this morning can overcome a lack of assurance if you don't trust these promises of the gospel. Can you say, I believe Jesus died for my sins and I trust in him alone to save me? That is our primary and foundational source of assurance. But the reason we're in 1 John is because there's some other stuff here that's challenging. So let's look at point two, when your life lines up with your confession. When your life lines up with your confession. So one of the real challenges with John's purpose statement for his letter, in verse, remember verse 13, I write these things um, for, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, he says when I, I write these things, now, this is what I didn't see as a 15-year-old when I first read verse 13 and understood some aspect of assurance. I just read it to mean, if you believe, then you know. But actually, that's not what John says in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe that you may know. So what are the these things? Well, the these things are the whole letter. And he wrote a lot of challenging things in the letter. But he wrote these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So we'll look at a few of these other things that John uh, wrote to them uh, that would help them in their assurance. Now different, different commentators, different authors are going to call these things different. Uh, so one might say these are uh, the tests of life. Or maybe one would say, uh, these are confirming evidences. Or you might say, uh, these are the duties of obedience, which is what our confession said that we read. Um, Greg Gilbert calls these things confirming sources of assurance. So just as a reminder, we, we, I've emphasized the word know, K-N-O-W, several times. John uses it 37 times in the letter. And many of these are referring to this certainty that we can have about our salvation. That you may know, that you may know, that you may know. He just says it over and over again. We've read some of them. Here, here are a few more. 1 John 2, starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him.
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, our first set of verses is talking about one of the ways that we know, a confirming evidence, is obedience to God and his commands. The next one relates to our love in chapter 3, verse 14. You could go all over the book and find this idea, but chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Again, John, John uses really stark pictures. You know, it's very binary here. And then the third relates to the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. So we have these three categories along with belief. We have, we have belief, obedience, love, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Four evidences here in the letter of John to help us with our assurance. So those are kind of categories. So there are many more specific statements throughout the letter that describe true Christian behavior and characteristics. I'm just going to go through these quickly. You can go back and read the book later. True Christians, we must walk in the light. We must admit that we are sinners. We must confess our sins. We must not hate our brother, but instead love him. We must not love the world. That's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. We must do the will of God. We must practice righteousness. We must purify ourselves because Jesus is pure. We must not practice or keep on sinning. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We must not merely love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We must do what pleases God. We must confess that Jesus came in the flesh. We must keep God's commandments, and they should not be burdensome. And we must keep ourselves from idols. That's quite a list. Did any of you flinch in any of those? I do. And there's a real temptation, and, and here's... Here's the big idea for how I want you to think about the book of 1 John. There is a real temptation, church, that when we read those statements, we see them in some way that John is trying to create doubt and not assurance. John is not writing the letter to create doubt, but to give assurance. He is not trying to terrify us with our failures and weaknesses. He is... He's trying to give us assurance. This is why he wrote the book. Now, John is not saying, he is not saying that if we do these things perfectly, that we somehow earn or contribute to our salvation. He's not saying that we have to do them perfectly in order to experience assurance. Because let's, let's think about this for a minute. If John was really saying that you have to do all of those things I just read out loud perfectly in order to have assurance, how many of us would have any assurance? Anybody want to raise your hand? Not me. I wouldn't have it if I had to do those things perfectly. 
So what is John doing? How are we to read this book? John is trying to get his readers to understand what true believers' lives should look like. He's painting a very holistic picture of what the Christian life should be like, a broad picture, what it looks like to live as a disciple. And I I just believe it's it's a very... It's an unfortunate misreading of John's letter if we feel that all of these statements are gotcha statements. Like somehow it's the, all you have to do is believe, but here's the fine print of what you really have to do to be saved. That is not what's going on in John's letter. These are not gotcha moments. If only the best 5% or 1% of Christians, whatever whatever that means, I'm not even sure what that means, but if if only the top 1% of Christians, the best Christians you know, could have any assurance, then John's letter makes no sense if the reason he wrote it is that we would have assurance. Who could remotely consider themselves comforted? So remember the context of John's letter. He's writing to a church trying to help them understand and how to think about some things that are going on in their midst. In chapter 2, we, we realize there have been a group of people that have left their church. And not just like people who leave our church to go to another good church across town, not that kind of leaving. The kind of, the kind of leaving where they're starting to preach a different gospel. The kind of leaving where they're causing schism and division and questioning the truths of Christianity Seems like there were some that were teaching some false doctrines about whether Christ was really the Son of God or whether Christ really came into the flesh in his incarnation. It seems like some that, some that were teaching it was, it was okay to ignore obedience to God's law and, and still say that you could live a lawless life and still say you're, you're okay with God, that you could have assurance of salvation. So John is not trying to point out here that you have to do these things perfectly to have any sense of assurance because no one would. So I titled this point with with intentional precision. And what I said was, when your life lines up with your confession. I did not say, when you live a sinless life. I did not say, when you obey God perfectly. I did not say when you no longer struggle with sin or temptation. But that's how we often try to read this letter, is if that's what John's point is. But no, we say we can have assurance when our life lines up with our confession. Now, let's remind ourselves, we we just went over this, but let's remind ourselves again what we mean by our confession is our confession that we contribute anything of our own to our salvation? No. Is our confession that at some point we stop sinning and we, we deserve the grace that God has poured out on us? No, it's not our confession. Is our confession that through Christian maturity we, we get to a point of living sinlessly? That is not our confession, friends. Our, our confession is that none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10 Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall, present tense, short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 
The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we've read before, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, the, the Christian confession excludes any trust in my own righteousness. It excludes it. To say that our own righteousness is what gives us assurance is to turn the book of 1 John and the gospel on its head. He even says in chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and his truth is not in us. So, what do we do then? Well, some pastors and theologians over the years of church history have tried to remove any aspect of what I'll call fruit inspection or tests of life from the discussion about assurance. So no, let's just remove that as a category for assurance. Assurance is, on, assurance is only belief in the gospel. In other words, saving faith and assurance are the same thing. I don't think John lets us go there. Because why did he write the book? He wrote the book so that we might know that we have eternal life. And what does he do in the book? He presents all of these things that should be true about believers to help us know who the true believers are and who they aren't. But one thing I want you to remember is that John intends for the Christian to look at these statements and conclude, I'm sure of my salvation. John didn't write all these statements so that everyone, every Christian would conclude there is no hope of assurance. Gilbert says it this way in his book. When the Bible talks about the relationship between our good works and assurance, the purpose is almost always to settle believers' hearts and consciences, to confirm them and comfort them, not to terrify them. So, what are some ways that we apply these tests wrongly that create doubt instead of assurance? Get a lot of these ideas from Gilbert. But one, he, we compare ourselves to others. We may say, well, so-and-so is more loving than I am. Or so-and-so is more dedicated to their uh, Christian discipleship than I am. So we compare ourselves to others. That undermines John's message. Or we have unbiblical expectations about our sanctification. So remember what sanctification is. It's that process by which from when we become a Christian, we first believe until we get to heaven or the Lord comes back. That process of growing in godliness and holiness that we want to either look like this or like this, just this straight line, but often looks like this. We have an unbiblical expectation for our sanctification that says, I shouldn't still be struggling with this. And the truth is, we don't have a promise from God that we're not going to continue struggling with sin until the Lord comes back. And the mortality puts on immortality. Or, 
Here's another thing we, way we do this wrongly. We examine ourselves by ourselves without the helpful input of other people in the church. We can really look inward on ourselves and, and really exclude some things that God wants us to see about what God has been doing in our life, what God is doing in our life, and what God will do in our life. We need the eyes of others, their input. Or maybe we only examine a very small sliver of our Christian life. And that just happens to be a sliver where we're really struggling, right? That's not going to help us do what John's trying to have us do. And we're all, I think we're all guilty of this. But when we see deficiencies, and we all have them, when we see them, we try to fix them before we go to the Lord. Will that lead to assurance? No. When... When the enemy or the accuser or your friend or someone who loves you confronts you with something that is in your life and shouldn't be there because it's not the way a Christian should live, we don't defend ourselves, we don't excuse ourselves, but we also don't try to just fix it apart from God's grace and forgiveness and help. We go to the Lord first and just confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the Holy Spirit helps us rebuild that part of our life. And one final way that we apply John's tests wrongly is that we change John's questions. And this is one of the most helpful insights that I got from, from reading this book. One of the reasons that we're terrified when we read John's letter is because we read it and then we change the questions. Let's, let's hear from Gilbert again. He says this. One of the most striking things about John's tests is that they're so simple and concrete and answerable. Do I affirm the truth about Jesus? Yes. Do I love other believers? Yes. Is my allegiance to the world? No. But so often in our search for assurance, we tend to make up our own questions. Do I love God enough? Is it the right kind of love? Is my faith strong enough and my joy large enough and my passion hot enough? If those are the questions of assurance, then God help us because none of them can be answered in a concrete and straightforward way. Here's the point. Don't make up your own questions. Use John's. They're simple, meaningful, and above all, straightforwardly answerable. We make up our own. Is my, is my faith Pure enough, big enough, strong enough, high enough? Can't, those are hard questions to answer, and we'll always be in doubt. So one helpful way to counteract this is to imagine the person who answers no to all of John's questions. What does that person look like? This person might claim to be without sin, or he refuses to confess his sins. He hates his brothers. He practices getting better at sin. I don't know if you, you know, I'm a musician, so every time I get to chapter three, you know, practice righteousness, practice sin, I imagine practicing the piano. Why do you practice the piano? You practice it to do it the right way to get better at it. If you practice sinning, you're trying to get better at it. Trying to get better at sin so that nobody finds out, so that I get more fulfillment out of it, so that... Don't practice sin, practice righteousness. But 
The person who says no to all John's tests practices getting better at sin. He denies that Jesus is really the Son of God, or he denies that Jesus really came in the flesh, or he lives a lawless life. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit, and he's clearly embracing the world's system and its desires. See, John's questions are pretty simple. Do you love the world, or do you love God? but how much do I have to love God for this to be true about me? That's not what John's asking you. He's asking you, are you you devoted to living the world's way? Or is your trajectory to, to look at God's commands and obey him? See, the person living the way I just described should have no assurance, should have no assurance of salvation. No matter what religious experience he had in the past, If you live a lawless life, if you hate the brothers, if you deny the truths of the gospel, you should not have assurance. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. It just means you need to repent and turn from your sin and believe the truths of the scripture and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. You can be forgiven. God will do a transformational work in your life and then you can have assurance. But you can't continue living that way and claim salvation. The Lord knows those who are his, Timothy says, Paul says to Timothy. But let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So we've looked at two sources of assurance. We've looked, number one, the source of believing the gospel. Does your confession, what you say, what you believe, does your confession line up with the gospel? Second, we looked at, does your life line up with your confession? And we've said, Your life lining up with your confession doesn't mean that you live a perfect life. It means you live like what you say, that I'm a sinner, saved by grace, called to holiness, called to obedience, called to love my brother. But there is a third kind of assurance. Now, the first two kinds come from applying the gospel promises to our lives. And this is just the basic confidence that comes with believing. You have to have some confidence of your salvation, to believe the gospel. And the second is a confirming assurance that comes with a life lived consistent with what you believe. But this third type of assurance is different altogether. John hints at it in chapter 3, verse 24. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And again in verse chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, just a reminder, theological reminder, all believers have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables our belief and who gives us the strength and power to put sin to death and to obey Christ. There's no fruit of the Spirit without the indwelling and power of the Holy Spirit. But I think John is getting at something a little different here a little more when he mentions the Holy Spirit as grounds for our assurance. I believe he's pointing us to a particular ministry of the Holy Spirit to which he gives us external evidence of our adoption. So Martin Lloyd-Jones in Joy Unspeakable says this, "There there is a third type of assurance, which is the highest, the most absolute and glorious, and which differs essentially from the other two. How? Like this. You notice in the first two types of assurance that what we're doing is drawing deductions. As we read the scriptures, perhaps, 
we arrive at the assurance by a process of reading, understanding, self-examination, or self-analysis. It's a deduction that we draw from the premises given. And it is right and true. But the glory, the glory of the third and highest form of assurance is that it is neither anything that we do nor any deduction that we draw but an assurance that is given to us by the blessed Spirit himself. Now, in my, in my Christian experience and in the experience of many of you that I've talked with, I know that the awareness of this kind of assurance, it ebbs and flows. It comes and goes. Christians may go months or years without experiencing it. And maybe you experience this kind of assurance and from the Holy Spirit in the past and you're not experiencing it right now and you will experience it again in the future. It's much more subjective But oh, the glorious gift when the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here are a few passages that give us a glimpse of this. Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, this is a a gift from God. This isn't just you trying to figure out, okay, I believe this truth, I believe this truth. My life more or less lines up with that way of believing. Even though I fail and falter, God's grace is sufficient for these things. But oh, how glorious it is when the Holy Spirit just tells you that you're a child of God. It's a great, precious gift. Or Ephesians 3, this prayer of Paul, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to let you know in in God's abundant gracious way that you are a child of his and experiencing his love. This isn't something that's calculated. It is given to you by the Holy Spirit. And it's not something, I don't think this is something we experience all the time. Paul's praying that this would be true about the church because they need this and they desire it. In church, we need it and desire it too. Romans 5 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do you know that God loves you? Well, I know because He sent Jesus to die for me. But there's more. You see, it's not just me reading that truth in John 3 and believing it, which gives me a sense of assurance, but this is more. That through the Holy Spirit, God's love is poured out abundantly in my heart. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that this would be true for us. 
that the Holy Spirit would bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God and that we are recipients of his love. But don't despair. We started with a statement that sometimes you can go seasons, years without this sense. But God invites us to pray for it. So what do we do? What do we do? You may be here this morning and you may lack assurance in some way. What should you do? First, don't automatically assume that that means you're not a Christian just because you don't feel a sense of assurance. More work is required to discover what's going on. We read chapter 3, verse 20 at the beginning. It said this, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Does your heart ever condemn you? And really put a damper on your assurance? You're just not good enough, John. You're just not dedicated enough. You're just not holy enough. You still love some of the things of the world. You don't always confess your sins like you ought to. And your heart condemns you. This God is greater than our heart. God knows that we are a bit dust. God knows that we are frail. God knows that we are weak. Christ came for the weak and the frail to save them, to strengthen them. So there may be a situation where your heart condemns you and we try to add fruit to our life to make up for it. That will never bring you assurance. Now you look to the promises of the gospel. So what do we do? I would encourage you, if you're struggling with assurance, quiz yourself on your belief in the gospel. So what do I mean by quizzing yourself? Here we go. Do you, I believe there is a God? Do I believe that Jesus of Nazareth really existed? Do I believe he is the son of God? Do I believe he died on the cross? Do I believe that when he died, he was dying in the place of sinners? Do I believe he really truly, bodily, rose from the dead? Do I believe I am a sinner who needs to be saved? Do I believe Jesus when he said, everyone who trusts in him will not perish? Do I believe God when he said, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Do we believe those truths that are certain? Those are, those are certain truths. So quiz yourself. And, and if you get stuck, invite someone else into your struggle to help you discern what might be going on in your life where you're questioning your salvation. So that's number two. Invite other believers into your struggle to help you see the work of God in your life. Number three, agree with your accuser when he points out sin in your life. And then look to Christ. For every look at yourself, McShane said, take ten looks at Christ. Look to Christ. And number four, pray for the supernatural witness of the Holy Spirit. That's a blessing that God will give us through the Holy Spirit, and we should ask. Well, friends, I, my hope and prayer for you is that this message from 1 John will encourage you that God's not trying to gotcha you. He's trying to give you assurance of your faith that will lead to a fruitful life and a glorious sharing of his good news with others. Let's stand together. Oh God, you are you're our only hope. There is no hope in man. There is only hope in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came for us and lived a holy life, a perfect life, a sinless life, died for us, 
died in our place that we might receive adoption as sons. Lord, I pray for any here who do not believe yet these truths about who Jesus is. You would give them faith to believe. Faith to turn from sin and turn from our own efforts to earn your salvation and trust in Christ alone. And Father, for those who are actually wrestling with assurance because they, they see weakness in their lives or sin or they have questions, God, in your mercy, meet them with the work of your Holy Spirit. Meet them and bring them along into just an assurance that you have promised and you are faithful to do what you've promised. We pray in Jesus' name.